welcome, Neil. Dan, what was that music you were playing before the show started? It sounded like interstitial mu- uh, music for like, like the- a 1970s cop show. Sounded like library music to you? No, not necessarily. It was Air from 1998. Oh. Uh, Talkie Walkie. It was pretty big back then. Yeah, it was really big back then. I totally forgot about Air. That's Remember not- Air? Yeah, that's not, uh, well, because I've learned about them in like the late 80s. That's not Holger Chouquet's band. That's Can, correct? Yeah, that's uh, Can. There is another band called Air, but uh, this one's the French duo from the late 90s. Oh, okay. Different band, I guess I'm thinking of. Live from the United States where the law is far too often the crime, this is hell, and there's likely only a few people who have witnessed the law acting in a criminal way as much as today's guest. Attorney Flint Taylor is a founding member of Chicago's People's Law Office and author of the new report, The Wrongful Conviction of Johnny Lee Savory. You can find that report as well as more information about the People's Law Office at peopleslawoffice.org. You can follow People's Law Office on Twitter at peopleslawchi. While Flint has appeared on our show many, many, many times, this is Flint's first appearance on This Is Hell since 2019, since before the pandemic when we spoke with him about his then-just-published book, The Torture Machine, Racism and Police Violence in Chicago. According to the People's Law Office site, among the landmark cases that Flint has litigated are the Fred Hampton Black Panther case, the Greensboro, North Carolina case against the Ku Klux Klan and Nazis, the Ford Heights 4 case in which four innocent men received a record $36 million settlement for their wrongful conviction and imprisonment, and a series of cases arising from a pattern and practice of police torture and cover-up by former Chicago Police Commander John Burge, former Mayor Richard M. Daley, former State's Attorney Richard Devine, and numerous other police and government officials, five of which have been settled against the city of Chicago and Cook County for a total of approximately $26 million. Flint obtained a multi-million dollar settlement for a seven-year-old boy who was falsely accused by the Chicago police of the murder of 11-year-old Ryan Harris and has represented and continues to represent numerous other wrongfully convicted persons who have spent decades in prison and on death row. So the perfect person to talk about what's happening with the case of Johnny Lee Savory. Flint uh, was one of the lead lawyers to obtain a $5 million settlement for 74 victims of illegal strip and body cavity searches by the Milwaukee Police Department. So he does this all over the country and now represents three victims of torture and abuse at the CPD's secret interrogation site known as Homan Square. Taylor also, or Flint also played a major role in the George Jones Street Files case that uncovered the unlawful Chicago police practice of keeping one set of files to be produced to, uh, to defense lawyers while maintaining another secret set of files that often contained exculpatory evidence. This case dramatically changed the criminal discovery process in Cook County and also led to the groundbreaking wrongful prosecution verdict in Jones v. City of Chicago. And despite doing all of that Flint is also involved, again, in this case of Johnny Lee Savory, who in 1977 was wrongfully charged and sentenced in what many consider to be the most heinous murder in the history of Peoria, Illinois, 
when he was only 14 years old. And he's still seeking his innocence, which we'll be talking about in a few minutes with Flint. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz, producing his Dan Hill. Dan, anything new by you? Not much. We went out to Super Dogs. You ever get out that way? Oh, my God. You know... That's one of those tourist places that mm. actually lives it up does. to its billing. It's like a living museum, but you get to eat a hot dog. And a great hot dog. Their relish is some dog. of the best relish I have ever had in the city. It's a lot of fun. It's got everything going for it. It's the American Dream. It's born in, it started in 1948, and it's got that huge fiberglass statue on top of it, which is simultaneously whimsical and nightmarish. <laughs> yes, and uh, oddly Freudian. Yeah, definitely, because they're hot dogs, There's right? something going on there, yeah. Just looking at you with those red eyes. Did you pull up and uh, do your yeah. order through the box? Yeah, we did it with a little zip car. We rented a zip car and made it smell like hot dogs. <laughs> that's awesome. I, good. I love it that smelled you... like weed when we started, so it's, <laughs> it's a melange by the end. So uh, I have a feeling that's what most of those cars smell like yeah, when I'll they pull bet. up there. Yeah. Uh, but it's one of those places that used to have, you know, like... Uh, waitresses on roller skates mm-hmm. that would go out and bring you your food. Now they don't have the roller skates, but they no. still have that box there with the menu Absolutely. and you can order right through the box. So it's very safe during the pandemic. It's a very satisfying toggle on that switch. Just has a really nice click on it. Yeah. And if you feel like it, you can go across the street and eat your food over at Labaw Woods, which is fantastic. Exactly. Labaw, not Labag. <laughs> I mispronounced it a couple weeks ago. Oh, I thought you were doing that as a joke. No, I thought I'm that was an pretty idiot. funny. Because yeah. <laughs> there are, you can find a lot, a lot of people uh, carrying la bags in La Woods. That's true. <laughs> so what's new by me is on top of all my health problems I've experienced this year in 2022, my doctor now tells me, drum roll please, I now have proud owner of a hernia which was caused by the several surgeries I had this year to address a life-threatening infection caused by my digestive system basically rupturing. So now I got that going for me, too. A hernia. This, too, will require surgery. However, because I was recently sedated several times over a period of five months, it's not considered safe for me to get surgery at this time, which means I have to live with having a hernia for the next six months, and we've become very close friends. Of course... Learning of my latest ailment and the prospect of returning to the hospital for another surgery was a real downer for me. However, I now know, or at least I think I know, why my depression of late has seemed so out of control. But the only way you can hear my new self-diagnosis of what's been troubling me so much is by tuning into this week's Patreon podcast, which streams live Friday morning at 10 a.m. Chicago time at patreon.com slash thisishell, and his podcast shortly after at the same place. But the only way you can hear what is likely a poor self-diagnosis, or maybe it's kind of accurate, is again by subscribing to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from Hell is, besides a fake sunlight lamp, how do you keep the seasonal effective scaries away now that it gets dark at 4 p.m.? 4 p.m. Hot dog. 4 p.m. darkness. I woke up at 5.20 this morning and the huge dumpster out back that's taking away all of my downstairs hoarders neighbor's stuff, uh, it was filled with possums and rats. The dumpster was full of (laughs) possums and rats? (laughs) Yes. That's an image. There was a big rat-possum battle going over the garbage. Pull that lever and make the squeezer thing come down. (laughs) No, no, that would have been (laughs) gross. Uh, The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want. The t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter toque. 
as well as the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive, featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you'll see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. And uh, the guest earlier this week was saying that there are no, there is no journalism, There that is, there are no news organizations that is not funded by advertising, but uh, there's us. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can post it on Twitter. You can uh, email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. And as always, we will be announcing this week's winner at the end of this week's show. Uh, also coming up is Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff ponders how myopic are our reflections of the past. And I don't know if he's allowed to use the word myopic unless he is myopic. I'm pretty sure he can, though. Our show, This Is Hell, got a mention in an article by writer M.L. Clark at OnlySkyMeet.media with the headline, The Work Goes On, Seven Post-Midterm Podcasts for a Better Democracy. Clark says of This Is Hell making her list, This recommendation goes big picture because part of our problem very much lies in overlooking the other pillars that sustain a healthy democracy outside of elections. Clark writes, This is Hell is part podcast, part radio show. The November 8th episode's main interview with Alec Karakatsanis about his uh, recent article at his Copaganda Substack, a warning to journalists about elite academia. In in that article, Karakatsanis, who is a media critic uh, and routinely deconstructs the biased, if not flat-out incorrect use of statistics in mainstream media like the New York Times and the Washington Post, both in their choices with respect to what crimes to cover and how to cover them. In the article, Karakatsanis uh, cautions journalists about the role played by academics in this spread of information. As host Chuck Mertz frames the episode, quote, we expect academia, the greatest intellects to guide us by, uh, they're supposed to guide us by applying the scientific method. That is the process of objectively establishing facts through testing and experimentation, making an observation, forming a hypothesis, making a prediction, conducting an experiment, and finally analyzing the result, thus determining which policy is best when considering, in this case, criminal justice and law enforcement policy. But what if those trusted experts, those elites, are far from being objective in their examination of an issue that affects us all, Mertz asks. What if, rather than offering evidence to support any claims they make, they instead engage in hyperbole and conjecture and wrap it all up in an article published by an academic journal to give their findings some level of gravitas, leaving those in the media to believe their findings are, in fact, factual, when in reality their findings are far from being based on reality. Clark explains what makes this topic useful when thinking about how to build a better democracy is that there are facets to appeal to both sides of the stark political binary. Yes, criticizing public spending on police and arguing for an approach to crime reporting that pays more attention to the far more costly issues of white-collar crime and wage theft is a decidedly liberal left issue, but also critiquing institutions like the New York Times, Washington Post, and universities for their elitist disconnect is absolutely a thriving pastime among right-wing groups. So surely there's some common ground to be found here. No? 
as Karakatsanis notes, when looking through all the omitted costs of increased policing in the academic paper, quote, all of those cons were completely ignored, and yet these professors were celebrating their article as some sort of rigorous, progressive, egalitarian contribution. It's really incredible, and its role in the so-called discourse is that it makes it okay for progressives to take pro-police positions, like those taken by the academics who insist that all we need to fix our crime problem is hire a half million more police nationally. And that is a really important function that elites serve. They tend to try to co-opt the energy of more left-leaning, more radical movements by making it okay for good, uncritical liberals to support policies that actually undermine everything that they say they believe about our side. Clark concludes, without good data and good dissemination of that data. How can we ever expect to advance policies that will actually improve our societies? We cannot expect fellow citizens to recognize every bias and data inaccuracy they come across in readings, viewings, and listening experiences. Even folks who are once highly trained in identifying fallacious reasoning can easily grow rusty. We need a thriving commons, one that celebrates good faith discourse, does not stigmatize the sheer fact of error and invites us to see critical thinking as a process of ongoing refinement to accommodate for the inevitable individual lapses and to build shared histories and data sets that will help us cultivate more resilient communities and frame better policy. Every pillar of democracy matters, not just those laid bare on or around election days. Again, you can find the that uh, November 8th <clears throat> show and interview with Alec at thisishell.com. I'd suggest you search on his last name, Karakatsanis, but it's kind of hard to spell. So just search on Alec, A-L-E-C. Thanks to M.L. Clark and OnlySky.media for including us in their list of seven post-midterm, not post-modern, but post-midterm podcasts. This is kind of a post-modern podcast for a better democracy. But I got to say it was weird to be on a list of shows that includes those hosted by John Favreau, John Stewart, and Ira Glass in a podcast that was about to have on have an interview with Malcolm freaking Gladwell, which makes me wonder what that company says about us. Coming up, Flint Taylor discusses the wrongful 1977 conviction of Johnny Lee Savory, which Johnny is still fighting to this day. Dan will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll tell you what, what happened this week in Rotten History, and we'll tell you who will be on tomorrow's show. Or not your eyewitness to grief. This is hell, and it won't, when it comes to causing grief, injustice has got to be near the very top of that list, especially when you uh, know when you have no recourse to address the injustice that has been imposed upon you. But that's exactly what Johnny Lee Savory has had to deal with for 46 years since he was convicted for a heinous murder he did not commit when he was only 14 years old, returning to help us understand this nightmare. Attorney Flint Taylor is a founding member of Chicago's People's Law Office and author of the new report, The Wrongful Conviction of Johnny Lee Savory. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Flint. Well, it was so great to be back, Chuck. And I'm so glad you're feeling better. Uh, and you've only used up maybe one of your nine lives, so we can... <laughs> Hope to have you around for a hell of a long time, as they say. <laughs> I, think I'm um, on, I think I'm on about number six right now. Though, oh, okay, well, what can I say? Let's uh, get an extension uh, of those nine. Um, uh, you know, I was listening to to uh, 
your set your 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 lead in and uh you know we we're now in supposedly the post uh pandemic we're coming out of that fog to some degree but i was actually on your show one time subsequent to 2019 and that's when jeff haas and i came on in two, yes. early 2021 to talk about the fred hampton the new fbi documents in the fred hampton case so um we uh continue to have a uh, ongoing relationship with your show and with you and uh we're certainly i am very happy to be back it's great to hear your voice again, Flint, and I apologize for that. We have some updating to do to our website. I looked, tried to uh, find the last time we were on, you were on, and I saw it was about The Torture Machine, which is a fantastic book, and people should check out Flint's writing in the book The Torture Machine. You write that on, in the afternoon of uh, January 18, 1977, the mother and stepfather of 14-year-old James Robinson and his 19-year-old sister Connie Cooper returned home and discovered a horrendous murder scene, the bloody bodies of their two children. It was a sensational case, even by the standards of Peoria, a corrupt and violent city with a population of about 120,000 located in western Illinois on the Illinois River. The murders rocked the small black community of Peoria, and the Peoria police scrambled to solve the case. The sensational nature of the case was publicly fueled by the Peoria Police Department. According to one published article, veteran uh, homicide detectives said that the mutilation knife murders were the most ghastly committed in at least the last 50 years in their city and among the most gruesome ever to occur in the state of Illinois. It also quoted the head of the uh, Peoria Police Department crime laboratory as saying the wounds were the worst I've seen since I came on the force, and I've seen a lot of them in more than 20 years. He added that the wounds were done with an intent to kill like a maniac did it. The county coroner was quoted as saying that the victims were stabbed and slashed something awful with a big, sharp instrument, and that they were the most brutal murders I've ever I've seen in a long, long time. It's hard to understand why anyone would or could do something like that. So, Flint, is that kind of sensationalism by the police and the coroner's office typical? And if so, in your opinion, why would the police want to sensationalize a homicide? Well, it is uh, in in high profile cases. um, And uh, there's a certain uh, systemic racism that's behind a lot of these cases. And you can see if you move on to the next uh, stage of this, oh, well, this is this kind of case. Well, let's grab a 14-year-old, 100-pound, 5-foot uh, uh, young young man of 14 uh, who happens to be a friend of one of the two uh, kids that was ki- were killed. Uh, we'll grab him after a week because we don't have anyone else. So that kind of thinking that was so prevalent back then, if you remember just um, 10 or 15 years later here in Chicago, they grabbed the 7- and 8-year-old kids for the rape and murder of an 11-year-old girl, Ryan Harris. So the mentality of the police department, uh, as reflects the mentality of a certain part of the populace, is something that fuels this kind of approach to a case like this and coming up with a result that not only doesn't make any sense to all of us who have any logic, uh, in looking at at the facts and the realities of the crime, but uh, fuels, uh, in this case, 26 different decisions in numerous different courts over a 30 to 40 year period to reject on various bases, not only Johnny's innocence, but the fact that the trials and the evidence did not support a conviction. 
earlier this year when we had Cerise Castle back on the show to talk about the L.A. County Sheriff's Department gangs, she mentioned how uh, that uh, the L.A. County Sheriff's Department has nearly 50 people in their public relations department. Is sensationalizing crime about police public relations? Definitely. I mean, you can't turn on the 10 o'clock news. It's so... Uh, revolting that every story is about crime. And of course, the Republicans particularly and the Democrats uh, in a cowardly fashion have uh, most recently uh, succumbed to the, the false narrative that crime is increasing now. And you, they use it for political purposes. Uh, and uh, it's sensationalizing it is a way to get eyeballs, as they say, right? Most people uh, who have any sense only turn on the 10 o'clock news to catch the weather, which, by the way, never mentions climate change. But uh, in that 10 minutes before the weather comes on, you get a, a, a veritable, veritable potpourri of crime cases and, and, and sensationalized crime cases. And that fits into the corporatized media and it fits into the whole political framework that the politicians are running on and running from. That's exactly why we have had Flint on the show so many times. So Flint, how does that sensationalism uh, impact uh, the investigation or the trial of suspects in such cases? Does does that sensationalism uh, uh, completely undermine the objectivity of jurors? Well, hopefully when the jurors sit down and uh, are actually given the evidence, uh, they will uh, have an open mind. And that's what you fight for as a trial lawyer. You fight, number one, to get people that at least you have a a roll of the dice with in terms of convincing them uh, on the facts uh, what really happened and didn't happen. Uh, but you, given the fact that most jurors in most jurisdictions are almost uh, exclusively white, that's, that's an uphill battle in, in most cases. Um, sometimes you're really surprised and, and you have a, an all white jury or a predominantly white jury and they uh, have a come to Jesus moment of, or moments from, from the evidence uh, and they're good people. But more often than not, the overlay of of that white supremacist attitudes and that uh, crime is so prevalent uh, mythology that we hear uh, every day uh, is a very large mountain to climb uh, in any case where uh, you have a jury, whether it be a criminal jury or a, a civil jury. So how can you extract that white supremacist attitude from the courtroom? Well, um, I'll give you a couple of an extreme examples uh, out of history. Uh, back when we did the Fred Hampton case, uh, we did a study and we saw that even though it was clear by that time that it was a, a, a murder and, and, and it was emerging that it was an FBI assassination as well, uh, we found that over a third uh, of the people we polled uh, would not give the Panthers any money even if they accepted our theory of the case. Now, when we went to the South, to North Carolina, to do the Klan case, uh, the case against the Klan and the police down there for killing five uh, demonstrators, 
1979, trial was in 85, we did a similar study and found similar results in terms of the attitudes of the people down there. And we had a halfway decent judge in the civil case. And so he allowed to ask questions. And one of the questions in the voir dire of the prospective jurors was basically, what would, what would you do if your daughter wanted to marry a black man? And that, along with other questions about their attitudes about the Klan, we got rid of 285 prospective jurors. Wow. Wow. So, I mean, that's rather mind-blowing. Uh, and this judge, uh, because there had already been two criminal trials where, uh, despite being uh, on videotape that these Klansmen jumped out and murdered these demonstrators, um, these, these Klansmen had been acquitted by all-white Southern juries. Uh, they wanted to have a black a black presence on the jury. And because they, the judge made sure there was a black man on the jury, a strong black man, uh, we actually got a verdict, uh, a compromised verdict that found that the police and, and the Klan had um, conspired to, to murder the demonstrators uh, at the demonstration. So uh, a lot, it, it matters uh, who you exclude as well as who is on the jury. Uh, and there's over the years, there's been more and more of an effort to keep the lawyers in the dark about any details about the jurors. Um, so that makes it even more difficult. On the other hand, because there's been so much because of the movements, because of people in the streets, because of the education that's gone on around police violence uh, and around mass incarceration, uh, you tend, and the fact that you know, the jurors are younger uh, in terms of what they've been through than they were 40 or 50 years ago, uh, there is a better chance of having jurors that are more open-minded and have some understanding of the realities of mass incarceration, uh, police violence, uh, white supremacy, as it were, that kind of thing. You write of the Johnny Lee Savory case, after a full week of essentially fruitless uh, around-the-clock investigation, the Peoria Police Department learned that someone by the name of Johnny was a friend of James Robinson. So at the urging of a juvenile lieutenant, they picked up the 14-year-old Johnny Lee Savory, who stood barely five feet tall, as you said, and weighed 100 pounds at his school. They picked him up at his school and took him to the police, police station. They then started an interrogation process that would go on for 30 hours over the next two days. Again, this was back in 1977. How different were the rules when it came to police interrogations uh, 45 years ago? Were those interrogations back then any less fair than they are today? Well, as you know, Chuck, um, I've spent decades dealing with police torture. And police torture, uh, in the cases that I have dealt with, were predominantly, if not always exclusively, in the station houses with suspects in serious cases, murder cases, uh, serious rape cases, that kind of thing. And of course, that's the most extreme kind of uh, interrogation that you can think of, right? The, the rack and the screw basically brought to us uh, from other countries and from uh, like from Vietnam, for example, when they tortured uh, uh, POWs there. 
Um, but this is a little more sophisticated, right? Uh, this isn't uh, torturing Johnny Savory in the sense of electric shock or, or suffocation or, you know, beating with rubber hoses. But this is the kind of interrogation that can lead to the same result as if you beat somebody or you torture somebody until they say, OK, I'll say whatever you want to say. Well, this is a 14 year old young man uh, who for 30 hours is put through the more sophisticated version of the rack and the screw. And finally, after all of this, which I detail in the article, how they deal with him, frighten him, terrorize him, uh, feed him what he's supposed to say, hold him, give him the carrot of making him think he can go home if he just says what, what they want him to say. Ultimately, after 30 hours, they get him to give, quote, a confession, unquote. But the confession he knows uh, is being fed to him, and, he, and, and, and in his heart, he doesn't want to give it because it's not true. So as they're finally getting their coup de grace, so to speak, they're getting this confession they worked him over for 30 hours to get, he keeps saying, uh, but I'm innocent. And they say to him, you're backtracking. And then they start to, you know, lean on him again and give him more of the facts. And so he, uh, at their uh, insistence and suggestion, weaves a story that gives them just enough to charge him with the two murders, even though when they ask him to sign it, he says, no, I'm not going to sign it. I'm innocent. Uh, so when you study this case and this interrogation, you understand that not all of them are torture in the sense of the torture machine, but it's a form of torture. It's a form of coercive interrogation that when you have particularly a vulnerable person, whether it be a, a, a child, whether it be someone of in, a, a lesser intellect, let's say, uh, or for whatever other reason, it's 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 low hanging fruit for these these officers. You write that this is was a clear violation of Johnny's Miranda rights, uh, due to Vega v. Teco, the Supreme Court uh, decision earlier this year. Police cannot be sued for not reading Miranda rights, but we still have Miranda rights. So, what impact did Vega v. Teco? have on us having those Miranda rights. If the police can't be sued for not reading the Miranda rights to us, how much of a threat is that to those rights? It's, it's a major threat. It's like the Supreme Court is kind of systematically, piece by piece, as cases come to them, and instead of them denying a review, uh, they take them on. And Vega is one they took on. And what they're doing is how courts do it. They chip away piece by piece until they get to Dobbs, and then they take it away completely. And by Dobbs, I mean, uh, of course, the abortion case. And now they get chip by chip, they chip away at affirmative action until now they get the case that was argued last month where they're going to take away affirmative action. Uh, same thing uh, with, so you know, sovereign rights of, of, of Native folks. Um, the case in front of uh, the Supreme Court, uh, that was argued recently about about tribes and about uh, um, what that means in terms of the rights of uh, 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 rights of, of of native folks and native tribes, um, and Vegas the same way. Okay, you take away the civil right, 
uh, to sue and you take away a, a big sword over the heads of those detectives who are interrogating. It's kind of uh, the remedy now still exists that you can raise it in court and perhaps get your confession suppressed based on the fact they didn't uh, give you Miranda warnings appropriately or overran your Miranda rights like they did with Johnny. Um, but you can't sue them. So uh, if they did it, and and so it, it's it's a major piece in the fabric of what the white supremacist uh, six person um, supermajority of the Supreme Court continues to do uh, and is empowered to do uh, in terms of all kinds of constitutional and civil rights. You write that during that interrogation, Johnny's father appeared briefly at the police station, but was so upset with the treatment of his son that he was banished from the station, leaving Johnny with his probation officer as his only, and then you have in quotes, advocate. As you've pointed out on the show before, and as you point out in this article, prosecution, prosecutors work very closely with police on, on these cases. How much is a probation officer an advocate? Do the probation officers like the prosecutors, work with the police and not necessarily are advocates for the people who have been in uh, charge of the crime. Of course. I mean, the law um, says that you can have your parent there. You should have your parent there to protect you. Um, and uh, then they give alternatives, and the bottom of the barrel of the alternatives would be the, the, the probation officer, which is laughable. Probation officer works for the state, as you pointed out. And in this case, the probation officer was all too willing to let the police do whatever they wanted to do, to take him to two different lie detector tests. And we know that, and, and, and it was even known by anybody with an open mind back then, that lie detector tests don't, you know, establish whether you did something or not. And the police uh, used them and used them in Johnny's case as an intimidation factor. And then a lot of times they would turn around and tell someone, well, you failed that lie detector test, now tell us the truth. And so it was, it was used not, uh, it was used cynically. Uh, and um, this probation officer, uh, in this case, Johnny's case, allowed him not once, but twice to be taken to, to uh, lie detector uh, tests by given by former uh, Peoria police officers. And in the second one, uh, which came just before they cracked him and, and, and made him give this, this false confession, um, the this uh, lie detector person starts screaming at him, "You're a murderer, and and uh, uh, you're lying." And and here we are, thirty hours after they first dragged him in, threw him in jail without probable cause overnight, did all the different things they did to him, stripped him naked, pulled hairs from his pubic area, um, did all these kinds of things over a thirty-year, a thirty-day, a thirty-hour period. Uh, threw his father out of the police station. Um, and, and then he's facing somebody that he might think is somewhat neutral, a, a, a lie detector person, and he's being berated by him. And that broke him down completely, turned him into tears. Then they brought the, the interrogating detective back. Now, why don't you tell us what we want to hear? So going back to your question, Yes, it's laughable that they would argue, and they continue to argue, well, he had an advocate there. He had his probation officer there. Uh, I think it's just, uh, it's remarkably uh, cynical uh, to, to, to argue that, that, that that man was his advocate. 
Do police still conduct multiple polygraph tests until they get the results they want? Well, I haven't seen that so much in, in, in cases uh, presently uh, because the, the polygraphs are so discredited. I mean, they're not uh, admitted uh, in courts because they're unreliable. Uh, they may uh, use them from time to time, but I haven't seen them uh, used uh, more recently uh, in the same way the, they did in the good old days, uh, the good, you know, the bad old days. I mean, I, I've had detectives admit during the process of uh, the uh, different cases, the torture cases, to admit, yeah, we, we use them and we lie about whether the uh, results uh, were favorable or unfavorable in terms of truth. Um, and that was a technique that we had. Uh, and 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 the courts pretty much allowed and allow detectives to lie to suspects, so they can come in and say, "Hey, your, your brother says you did it. Uh, about time you confessed." Or or say your 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 co-defendants in here singing like a canary. Well, it's your turn to give it up, and that might not be the truth at all. Uh, but the courts say, "Well, you can do that. That's a technique that you can use." So there are a lot of techniques short of, uh, you know, electric shock and uh, and suffocation uh, with a bag like we saw again and again and again by Burge and his men uh, that can can get to the same result, particularly when you have a, a, a vulnerable and terrified young um, suspect. The other day I was having a conversation with my girlfriend and she, and I, she said, what would you do if you were arrested? And I said, well, I believe that it's an unfair relationship that you have with police, that the police can lie to you and you cannot lie to the police. And I would just tell the police, look, I can't have I can't have a conversation with you because you can say whatever you want and I can't say whatever I want. You can lie to me and I can't lie to you. This is a dishonest relationship. So I'm not going to talk unless I have an attorney present. So is what would happen to me if I reacted that way in, the, in a police uh, station? Well, I assume your next move would have been to call me. Yes, exactly. That's exactly <laughs> what I would do. No, that's basically uh, that's basically what you need to do, uh, and 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 you don't even need to debate with them. You know that it's an unfair relationship. Uh, you just say, um, "I got nothing to say. Um, I want an attorney." Um, and if you and if you're fortunate enough to know or have an attorney's number or name, you you, you just need to to maintain the fact that you want to call that lawyer. Now, there's been some advances uh, here in uh, Chicago and in the Cook County courts, uh, thanks to the movement and thanks to the Public Defender's Office and other organizations to get uh, lawyers in the station houses uh, and to get them on call. Uh, and so there's, uh, and I think they're supposed to now post uh, numbers of, of legal organizations that uh, in the interrogation areas uh, so that you can call a lawyer to come down. And of course, the most key stage is right at the beginning. Uh, if, if Johnny had a lawyer there at the beginning, he never would have been forced over 30 hours to give a false uh, coerced and, and manufactured confession because the lawyer would have shut it off right at the beginning if, if, if the lawyer had any sense. Um, and, um, but that doesn't happen in, you know, 99% of the cases because pe people are poor and they don't have lawyers and they, they aren't educated in what their rights really are and, and they're, they're afraid. 
Um, and the cops are, are sophisticated and they use the carrot and the stick on you. Uh, if you don't have a lawyer, a lot of times they say, okay, we'll let you, well, you know, we'll, we'll let you uh, call your lawyer uh, in an hour. Let's talk a little bit, you know, and, 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 or they know the lawyer can't get there for, for a period of time, or they know that uh, perhaps the uh, lawyer can't figure out where the person is if in fact um, the family has called the lawyer and said, they just arrested so-and-so, um, but uh, I don't know where they took them. And that's what the home and square was all about, uh, was that they would take them to this secret place of, uh, in home and square and keep them there for uh, three hours, six hours, 12 hours uh, without charging them in the hope that they would flip on other people and give uh, evidence against other people. And if they did, they might let you go. But if you didn't, then they charge you. Uh, and during that six or 12 hour period, nobody knew where you were. And they wouldn't tell that. People didn't know about Holman Square. So if, if, if your family member was arrested, you'd be running around in circles and trying to find uh, where that person was being held. So you mentioned the breaking of Johnny Lee Savory's will. Is the best way to get an admission of guilt breaking somebody's will? Is that an efficient way in getting a just and fair conviction or charges against someone? Is there a better way to get an admission of guilt other than breaking somebody's will? Because I can imagine that the police would say, well, this is the strategy that we use because it works. Um. <laughs> It's not the best way. It's not it's certainly not the uh, constitutional way to do it. It's not, you know, you, people have rights. Uh, and uh, even if someone uh, does have evidence that in, inculpates or, or, or him or herself, they, they under the Fifth Amendment don't have any obligation uh, to, to, uh, to convict themselves. The police have to find the evidence uh, other than through the person. But I mean, study after study shows that it's unreliable. If you can, if you coerce someone, uh, if you trick someone into to giving a statement who who thinks that uh, in 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 exchange they're going to uh, get in a reward, like to go home or or to be freed or to get a lower sentence, those kinds of things don't work reliably, certainly. And and, and you go back again to the physical um, coercion, and, and, and I quote one of my clients and friends, Daryl Cannon, and many other men have said the same thing. You know, after they tortured me, I'd say my mother did it. Uh, and um, that's how you, you feel at some point uh when you go through this process and so the results are extremely unreliable and and the results are shown to be completely unreliable during you know the torture at guantanamo and the torture at abu Ghraib, and all the studies they've done of uh how often they get the truth and how often and i put quotes around that or how often they get what the police and the interrogators want uh, in terms of the theories of the case, in terms of the case that they're building, uh, all of that. So um, the short answer to your question is no, it, it, it's not constitutional. Uh, it's, it, it's a violation of human rights. And it doesn't uh, get, uh, if, if the goal is actually to find out what happened and who was involved, it's not reliable in any way 
to to get to that. And it leaves uh, for people who really care about solving crimes, uh, it leaves the real perpetrators free to, to, uh, to free to uh, um, do the same kinds of things again. And uh, we still don't know who did the Johnny Savory case 40 years later because they so messed it up uh, and, uh, you know, went with this uh, theory and went with the, uh, the uh, desperate, uh, what they wanted to get uh, after a, a week of uh, spinning their wheels and not being able to uh, arrest anyone for the case. So are police more interested then in getting a conviction than in solving a crime? Is that the major problem, a structural problem within the police force? Yes, I think that's definitely, um, I mean, they get paid based on, they get promoted based on, on, on their effectiveness. I mean, you would say, how could a, a, a detective, a John Burge, shoot up all the way to commander of police in the, in the fastest uh, way of any uh, police officer in the history of the city of Chicago um, while he was torturing people? And it was an open secret. Everybody knew he was doing it. The superintendent of police knew. Uh, Richie Daly, the, the prosecutor at the time, knew. Uh, all of the people who worked with him knew. But yet he was being promoted, detected, to sergeant, to lieutenant, to the head of the violent crimes unit, to commander. Um, why? Because he was getting convictions. He was sending men to, to death row. He was uh, getting life sentences based on tortured confessions because Jurors put a tremendous amount of weight on confessions because they ask some of the same questions that you just asked. Well, a person confessed. Why would someone say they did something that they didn't do? It takes, you know, it's it, in, in, in less than until you can explain it uh, in a logical way, um, the, the, it's it's counterintuitive to think, well, someone's going to come in and, and, and admit to a crime um, of murder that they didn't do. Why would they do that? Well, they do that because of the circumstances of their interrogation. Now, some people uh, will admit to things they did, obviously. Uh, there was a detective, a, a legendary detective, Frank Laverty. The, um, he was the Serpico of, of Chicago, uh, who, who exposed the street files and came forward and talked about Burge and talked about uh, all of the uh, uh, misconduct that police systemically and systematically engaged in, and and he was one of he he worked uh, under Burge and he said, well, I really didn't need to use these tactics because I felt that I could uh, interrogate someone uh, legally and uh, get what uh, and get the truth from them, so that. Tactics uh, short of, of of coercion and 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 uh, torture and um, fabrication um, are effective in getting at the truth more than the tactics that are used by these detectives uh, who have already decided that the person they're interrogating is guilty. So is that admissible in court? Can you tell the jury what the circumstances of signing that confession were? Or is the defense attorney even pervy to that, whatever the circumstances were of that signing of that confession? Well, um, first, you can raise it uh, on a motion to suppress. 
And that means you're you're moving that the because they violated the Constitution, uh, that that confession should be thrown out of court. But nine times out of 10, you're in front of a judge who previously was a prosecutor. And the evidence that comes in is you're saying I, I was tortured or they did this or that to me. Um, and but they're in these rooms. Who's who are the witnesses? The witnesses are the, the cop and the, co you know, the cop's partner and perhaps a supervisor and the state's attorney who's sitting in the, in the next room waiting anxiously for these cops to do their work and get him a confession that 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 he can use in court. So you go in uh, as the defendant and say they tortured me or they, you know, uh, violated my rights and in parades uh, a decorated Vietnam veteran like Burge. Uh, detectives uh, who worked under him and the state's attorney who took the confession to say nothing happened here. Uh, we gave him a sandwich. Uh, he was we were friendly to him. And after two or three, we let him go to the bathroom. Uh, and after two or three hours, he just gave us his confession. And the state's attorney says, yes, I didn't hear any screaming. Uh, he didn't complain to me. And so the judge uh, looks at this and says, motion denied. So then you go, and the confession then goes to trial. And at trial, uh, that same prosecutor comes in and says, I took this confession. He said that he murdered uh, Sally uh, in this way. Uh, and um, the detectives come in and say, yes, he gave this confession to me. Uh, and then you, it, then if you, the, defend, the uh, defense lawyer may put uh, the defendant on to say, no, they, they tortured that confession out of me. And then the jury's looking at, you know, two cops and a, and a prosecutor versus a defendant uh, who, if you put him on, then you run the risk of his background coming in. And of course, he's usually a poor uh, person of color who may have some criminal background. Criminal, and, and the de defense lawyer may decide not even to put him on. So that's the kind of situation that you have with a with a confession. Uh, and in Johnny's first trial, that's what they did. You know, they brought brought on the detectives to say he admitted to this. And um, that basically got him convicted. Uh, the court threw out that confession on appeal, which is highly unusual. Uh, so what did they do the second time? After first admitting they had no evidence, they went out and found three uh, associates of Johnny who they coerced into saying that Johnny had made some admissions to them about knowledge of the crime before the crime was uh, actually publicly known. So they convicted him a second time just based on these witnesses who all recanted their testimony subsequently. So they, they have a tremendous amount of power to create evidence. And the courts and the prosecutors, the prosecutors uh, actively and the courts more passively are co-conspirators in this massive um, undertaking. And that's why the, the Johnny Savory case is so remarkable, uh, because it goes on for 40 years and it implicates not only prosecutors and detectives, uh, but it also implicates a series of judges in the federal and state courts who refuse to do anything, refuse to recognize the realities of this wrongful conviction. So what does it say about the system when, you know, uh, you get these witnesses who make these statements that lead to your conviction? They are a very integral part of that conviction process. What does it say about those statements can get you convicted, but recantations 
cannot make that conviction go away? Very, very good question. Um, once you're convicted, uh, not only do all ties go to the prosecution, but uh, more than that, the, the standards are extremely high to reverse a case, particularly uh, in, in, a, in a case like this, the recantations uh, sometimes come well after the conviction. So you can't bring it in on a, the, the, those recantations in on your appeal. You have to bring what's called a post-conviction. And those post-convictions are, are scorned by uh, the judges. And you have to bring your post-conviction case back to the judge who sentenced you uh, and who was involved in your conviction. So the law, it's like recantations are worth uh, five cents on the dollar, whereas the original testimony that you gave uh, that witness, like in this case, the Ivies, uh, is worth 100 cents on the dollar. So when the courts look at this record and say, well, yeah, the person recanted, but uh, we have to give much more weight to the fact that he or she originally testified against Johnny. Um, and what's remarkable is that, they, you know, this, this, this is some eyewitness evidence. This is, witness, this is evidence just that Johnny came by their house and said, oh, yeah, uh, I know something about that murder. So it, it, it's extremely shaky evidence. It wasn't used at the first trial because they, they felt they had the confession that these witnesses weren't worth, you know, the paper they were printed on. But when they had to do a second trial and the confession was out, then they came up with these witnesses. <laughs> and these witnesses under pressure gave the evidence, but then they turned around and said, we, this isn't true. But that, and, and they used um, uh, scientific evidence, which has subsequently been debunked through DNA testing. But Johnny couldn't get DNA testing for 15 years after the uh, Illinois uh, legislature gave the right to defendants to, to have access to DNA testing. So he didn't get DNA testing uh, until he had been uh, under conviction for like um, almost 30 years. Um, so the, the story of this case is why I wrote about it, um, other than being also intimately involved as one of the lawyers in the civil case that he brought after he was ultimately exonerated, is it is a roadmap uh, of how the courts and the prosecution and the police work together to, to keep an innocent man who started out as a 14-year-old and ended up as this remarkable human being, uh, um, advocate for not only himself, but for others, uh, who was a model prisoner, uh, who suffered what uh, he described in his deposition as feeling like a slave, a man who was innocent, who didn't commit a crime, who was forced, uh, forced labor in the prison, uh, as all prisoners are, uh, and also spent much time in segregation fighting because he was fighting his case, because he was a jailhouse lawyer, because he was advocating for others. Um, so it, it is a story that everyone uh, needs to know, and that's why uh, I'm trying to bring it, bring it forward, uh, not only in the legal community, but also more broadly uh, to folks like you and people uh, who are willing to to listen to uh, the realities, because it fits 
uh, all of the checks all the boxes right in terms of mass incarceration in terms of racism and white supremacy uh, in terms of police misconduct and police violence in terms of racism it checks all those boxes you write that with regard to the reasonable doubt question, the court purportedly applying the standard, quote, that upon the record evidence uh, adduced at trial, no rational trier of fact could have found proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And viewing the evidence in the right in the uh, light most favorable to, to the guilty verdict, once again relied on the Ivy's discredited testimony. These are the witnesses' testimony. Johnny's exculpatory statements and the blood on the pants evidence to reject that claim. Is viewing the evidence in the light most favorable favorable to the guilty verdict normal? Before uh, convicted, are we innocent until proven guilty? And then when found guilty, are we guilty until proven innocent? Yes, that's what I was trying to get at uh, just uh, when I, in my answer to your last question. <laughs> that's a very, very good way to put it. Uh, yes, uh, all, as I said before, you know, the, the, all the inferences are supposed to go towards innocence when you're tried. Now that's kind of a fiction, right? Because most most jurors uh, pretty much make their decision up uh, from from the jump when you know, and you've got a huge burden to overcome as a criminal defendant. But that's the law, right? Innocent till proven guilty. You don't have to bring on any evidence. The prosecutor has to prove you guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. But once that burden is met by the prosecutor, uh, either with a judge who tries the case or with the jury, then the, the script is flipped, as you as you so um, succinctly pointed out, um, that now all, all uh, inferences go to the guilty verdict. And that's, that, that you know, and, and so often the, the evidence of innocence or, um, that the trial was unfair uh, takes years and years and decades to develop. Uh, and so the, the concept of rush to judgment and then, you know, doing away with all these quote appeals and all that kind of thing really is, is, is troubling as well uh, as a legal and uh, as a human rights position, because look at how long it took for Johnny to, get to the point where a governor uh, gave him a pardon. And that was, um, you know, that took 40 years. Uh, and, and he's one of the more fortunate ones. And I put quotes around that. How many others uh, didn't have the lawyers that he had, didn't have the persistence that he had and has uh, to fight for his innocence. Um, there, there are many, the jails and, and prisons are filled with men and women like that. So you point out, as you were just saying, you point out that in 2011, so he was arrested originally in January, I believe, of uh, 1977. You're right, in 2011, Johnny and his lawyers finally had a breakthrough when Governor Pat Quinn commuted his sentence, releasing him from parole, but keeping his conviction intact. I think that when people hear the word, uh, you know, a pardon from a governor, you think that the conviction goes away. The person is no longer found guilty. Uh, so pardons don't necessarily equate to being found not guilty. Why doesn't a, a pardon equate to innocence? Well, that's an interesting question. If you look at the history uh, of Johnny's uh, situation, he got paroled in 2007. 
So that was just one month short of 30 years. So he did 30 years and they gave him parole at that point because he didn't get a life sentence because he was a juvenile. He got uh, on the second trial, he got 40 to 80 years. So he comes out, he continues to fight uh, for his innocence. Um, and in 2011, Quinn goes part of the distance uh, and gives him a commutation. So that gets him off of parole but it doesn't uh, negate his sentence. He's still convicted. He just doesn't have to serve any more uh, time on parole. So Johnny keeps fighting that, and he's fighting for two things. One, he's fighting for um, uh, DNA testing, because he feels that if DNA tests are done on the blood on the pants and on other aspects of the physical evidence that they uh, argued so strongly, uh, also supported his guilt. It will further support his innocence. But he also keeps pushing on Quinn to give him a more complete, uh, not just a commutation, but a pardon. And so in 2015, Quinn actually gives him a pardon. Uh, and in it, he uh, restores all his rights and expunges his conviction. So at that point, it's um, a full-fledged pardon uh, that that he can argue uh, in the courts he was exonerated. Um, but uh, that's that's what happened in in stages in his case. But what's going on now is he has a civil rights case. He's attempting uh, to get uh, compensation for those 30 years uh, that he spent wrongfully conviction in, 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 in the prisons of the state of Illinois. Just two more questions for you, Flint. You write the discovery on the claims against the individual police defendants has proceeded since October of 2021, but you also point out that many of those defendants are now dead or claiming faulty memory due to old age. So what is the likelihood that Johnny will ever get any form of justice? Well, he's, he has a, um, a very uh, powerful um, team of lawyers that's, that's uh, trying to uncover and, and every rock uh, that hasn't already been uncovered. Uh, he has a very powerful case of innocence. Uh, it's true that many of the detectives and higher ups are either dead or um, are feigning or actually do have uh, failures in memory, conveniently or otherwise. Um, and uh, he's had to fight now since the lawsuit has been filed in 2017. We're now almost six years into the civil lawsuit because uh, the lawyers, uh, the private lawyers who have been retained by the city of Peoria to represent the case, of course, are getting paid by the hour. And they have made the, the tidy little sum of $2.5 million of Peoria taxpayer money uh, to fight every aspect of this case in, in civil court. Uh, and um, the lawyers who are defending Peoria just so happen to be the same lawyers who have, uh, on behalf of the city, represented John Burge and uh, his men uh, in the myriad suits that, uh, that we all have brought uh, for the torture of various men. And they have, uh, from the city of Chicago, made uh, at least $40 million of taxpayers' money defending the indefensible. So we, uh, these lawyers are going to run it out as far as they can 
Now, whether at some point there will be a um, offer of settlement or uh, we will end up going to trial uh, here in Chicago in federal court uh, remains to be seen. Uh, there are still um, motions to be argued um, on both sides of the fence. And I would not expect that a trial in Johnny's case would take place uh, if there is no settlement. Uh, before a year from now. I would guess, um, realistically speaking, we won't um, have a trial uh, on his civil case until late 2023. But Johnny is a remarkable person. Uh, he's, he's not giving up. He could have uh, given up a long time ago. Uh, I think I quote, I, I end my article uh, by quoting another young man. He's not young anymore, but he was uh, when they swooped him up as part of the Englewood Four and kept him in jail for uh, many years, um, uh, Terrell Swift. And uh, if I can read that to you, uh, uh, Chuck. Go ahead. It says, as for Johnny, I write, it is reasonable to ask why he continues to fight after 45 years, despite all the trauma and injustice that continue to be heaped upon him. Terrell Swift, another innocent juvenile who was wrongfully convicted in the 1990s and exonerated many years later, has offered the perfect response to this question. Quote, the answer is clear. The man is innocent. What can I say? Yeah. So one last question for you, Flint. And as always, it's the question from hell. And uh, I, I had a question from hell written down for you, but I think I've actually asked this to you before. And if I have, I have a second one for you. Have I ever asked you what the difference is between the law and justice? <laughs> well, Chuck, we're all getting uh, up there and have a bit of um, COVID fog. So if you have asked me that, um, I don't remember it, and I don't. <laughs> I don't remember the answer if I gave. Well, it. so let's hear your answer now. Uh, with all this COVID fog, so what is the difference, uh, Flint, in your experience between the law and justice? Well, I think in in many respects, when you have a poor person of color, uh, they're polar oper- opposites, um, and I think um, that uh, the. Um, I think it's Brian Stevenson who has the statement, uh, the opposite of, and I don't know if I'm going to get this right or not. Um, The opposite of poverty is not wealth. The opposite of poverty is justice. And I may have that backwards, but that's the thought that if you're poor and you're of color, particularly Justice is not in the cards in most instances for you. And the law enables that. The law is, uh, creates whatever fictions legally is necessary to, 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 to serve the, the powers that be, to serve whether it be the corporate interest, whether it be the, the governmental interest, uh, whether uh, the wealth versus poverty interest. In other words, in the same way, that police are an occupying force uh, in the communities of color, uh, the law um, reinforces that. It enforces it, not just reinforces it. So as a lawyer, um, you need to um, 
undress, as it were, the fictions and get to the truth of the matter. Um, and in law school, they teach you the opposite. They teach you about the fictions. They teach you to think in a way that uh, rejects or doesn't take into account the social and political and racial realities of the case before you, but rather to look at some you know, sterilized law, whether it's, uh, you know, flowed from Dred Scott and, you know, um, black folks don't have any rights that white folks uh, are bound to respect, or of course are bound to respect, or Plessy versus Ferguson, you know, uh, separate but equal to all of the cases uh, that we're seeing coming out of the Supreme Court now. Uh, those are, you know, those can tell you the difference between law and justice. Those decisions are, quote, law is what the Supreme Court and the politics of that of the Supreme Court are saying the law is, whether it's Dodds or whether it's um, affirmative action or whether it's Vega that you pointed out with regard to Miranda, or just I could cite these cases until um you know, for a week in terms of these decisions that come down. Justice, on the other hand, is Johnny being exonerated. Justice is John Burge going to jail. Uh, that justice is what the movement uh, and the lawyers who serve the movement and um, are able to obtain in spite of the law to try to use that law in such a way that uh, results in justice. Uh, but that's a, that's, a, that's a major struggle, a continuing struggle, and a struggle that we all, as people who, who care, or people uh, committed to, to justice, and um, have to fight day in and day out. Yeah, and it's just such a shame, because even if he gets any degree of justice in this situation, he's still going to be suffering for the rest of his life from the PTSD that he has from all the memories he has of the interrogation of his imprisonment of the struggles that he went through to become finally maybe at some point to finally actually have some degree of justice you know you you, you still those things just don't go away when you get you know a million dollars it just doesn't go away you have that for the rest of your life flint i cannot thank you enough for being back on our show if it wasn't for uh, support of, I mean, several people, you, Glenn Ford, Bruce Dixon, Kathy Kelly, so many people who have been so supportive of our show, our show wouldn't be what it is today. So I want to thank you for all the support that you've shown. And uh, you know, I'll be bugging you in the near future to uh, either have you back on the show or go have a beer. Yes, definitely. We love you, good brother, and, and stay well. All right, you too. Take care, Flint. Bye now. Bye. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Me Wrong. This is hell. Damn. I love Flint Taylor. If what you just heard from Flint Taylor on yet another wrongful murder conviction where the wrongly convicted have so much difficulty finally getting any, any semblance of justice, if you heard that and you realized, damn, this really is how show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast with streams this week on Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time, and this podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash thisishell, where you can show your support for a completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from hell, and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is, besides a fake sunlight lamp, how do you keep the seasonal effective scaries away? 
now that it gets dark at 4 p.m. <laughs> Over at Facebook, Kim G says, embrace the darkness. Oh, I see. Marguerite H says, go to sleep at 4.30 p.m. <laughs> All right. Pete V says, drink heavily. Well, I think he's got a conflict of interest. That's right. (laughs) Bogey G says, erotic asphyxiation. (laughs) Yeesh. You usually hear about autoerotic asphyxiation. It's nice that Bogey has friends. (laughs) It's very nice of him. To help him out. John T. He's a very popular man. Apparently. um, I get choked up just thinking about it. Oh, Jesus. Oh, criminy. John T. Uh. Let's walk walk right past that. John T. says, walk across state line road to Indiana. It won't get dark until 5 p.m. Oh, okay. You know, I missed a wedding once because of that difference in time. Because yeah, you didn't know. Nobody a dear knows. friend. In, yeah. Well, in Indiana, it's like different parts of the state are different times. I think you're right. It's it, pretty convoluted. It's very convoluted. Phil L. Another says. Another reason not to live in Indiana. Yeah, I've never had that trouble. <laughs> Phil L. says, that's a problem I never had. Okay. All right. Nick E. says, nip it in the bud first thing in the a.m. Two tablespoons of cheap whiskey in my coffee last the whole day. And, oh. of course, listening to this is hell. <laughs> Daniel L. says, moving to Uruguay. <laughs> All right. Aaron D. says, I sleep with a nightlight. Blake K. says, bundle up and go outside when the sun is up. Grab it while you can. That's good advice. Yeah. Ronald, Ronaldo M., our own Ronaldo M says, dragging my butt out of bed at dawn to catch all available sunlight. A lot of people have that as a solution. Yep. And eating my vegetables. Got to catch all those available vitamins. Yes. David Z says, praying for a thermonuclear war. <laughs> it's not the sun, but in a pinch. <laughs> we got a lot. We got a lot of uh, uh, responses this week. Terry M says, an ever-changing antidepressant cocktail and daily walks. In whatever daylight there is, Borky B says cocaine. <laughs> lots and wow. lots of cocaine. Wow. Our own <laughs> Jeffrey Torchin <laughs> says eating comfort food, which is basically all food, not eating on some kind of a dare. Adam A says a day full of good post-bender apologies always seems to make the seasonal mopes <laughs> feel less <laughs> significant. Braden S says living in the southern hemisphere <laughs> okay mike m says reselling yay 2024 gear on stormfront <laughs> and a few more over at twitter peter g says or petre g says watch watch you through lit windows uh-huh. oh and vitamin d supplements awesome. and finally hypocrite reader says making offerings of ointment and wine at the temple of raw in heliopolis wow that's a very difficult thing. Not everybody can do that, hypocrite reader, but I re- really appreciate the advice. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in rotten history. On the morning of December 6th, 1917, 105 years ago this week, well, and I thought this was going to be about Hiroshima on December 7th. Huh, who knew? On the morning of December 6th, 1917, 105 years ago this week, A moment of confusion occurred in the busy harbor of Halifax, Nova Scotia, where regulations instituted during World War I required merchant and military ships from Europe to stop for inspection before proceeding to other ports in North America. The coal-fueled Norwegian ship SS Immo was on its way out of the main harbor basin by way of a narrow channel leading to the ocean, which makes you wonder... 
Why they would require all these ships to stop for inspection at a harbor where there's a narrow channel. You'd, you'd figure you'd find a harbor with a, you know, wide channel if it's going to be every freaking ship from Europe. While the Imo was on its way out, coming up the channel the other way, was the French cargo ship the SS Montblanc, with a full load of TNT and petroleum-based military explosives. In the confusion of harbor traffic, the two ships mixed signals and collided in the channel as the crews of other nearby vessels watched anxiously. At first, the damage to the ships did not seem too bad, but the shock of the collision broke open some barrels of petrochemicals on the deck of the Mont Blanc, and the ship caught on fire. As spectators, spectators, gathered along the shore to watch the crew of the Mont Blanc hurriedly abandoned ship and tried to warn other vessels to back away as fireboats struggled to fight the growing blaze. Then the Mont Blanc exploded with so much force that the bottom of the harbor was briefly exposed to the open air before water surged back in. That is insane. The explosion, which was felt more than 100 miles away, destroyed every building within a half-mile radius, including homes, businesses, and factories that collapsed with workers trapped inside. It even started fires throughout the Halifax area and permanently blinded people who had been watching through the windows of homes near the harbor People who were hit in the face by broken glass. The ship's anchor, which weighed half a ton, would later be found two miles from the blast. About 1,800 people were killed and another 9,000 9, 9, more were in, uh, injured. More people died the next day when rescue efforts were impeded by a winter blizzard. The Halifax catastrophe was the largest artificial explosion ever to occur up until that time. And by some measures, it still is listed as the largest non-nuclear artificial explosion in history, even bigger than the one that occurred in 2020 near the waterfront in Beirut. Historians estimate its magnitude at just under three kilotons, or about one-fifth that of the atomic bomb exploded over Hiroshima in 1945, which would happen 28 years and one day later. And I knew we could not get out of a rotten history this week without mentioning Hiroshima because that's some real rotten history and this is hell. Coming up, Jeff, with the moment of truth, more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Actually, I think Dan has gotten to all of them already. And we'll tell you who our next guest is on this week's show. So you can still reply to this week's uh, question from hell today and on uh, our next show as well, on our final hour of this week's This Is Hell. And uh, we'll tell you who is going to be our next guest on this week's show, but uh, actually we've got some breaking news on that and we're not too sure right now. Live from Hangover Country, this is Hell, and Dan, I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. The dawning of the age. This is the time of year when my thoughts turn to the dark cave of ancient European winter solstice traditions. I don't know what all the specifics are, but I know that Yule was a macabre time when the countryside was sculpted by goat-headed demons, 
Wooly wild men brandishing knobby clubs, vengeful ghosts, hammer-wielding butchers, and other pagan shades visiting comeuppance, disproportionate or otherwise, upon the gullible, myth-hectored children of Europe. And from this, I derive comfort. I crawl into that dim thought cave and hibernate till early January. As I drift off, I ponder. I ponder, ruminate, daydream, and consider. What is the nature of this historical period we're living in? Is this really the right-wing version of the Age of Aquarius as it's advertised to be? If so, what shall we call it? The Age of Aquisitus? The Age of Cupiditus? The Age of Noncompassmentus? The Age of Nefarious, Precarious, Usurious, Usurious? It's clear that the fascist chaos mongers of today feel themselves to be simultaneously the functional equivalent of the revenge upon and the antidote to the radicals of five and six decades ago. Milo Yiannopoulos, James O'Keefe, and Dinesh D'Souza think they're the yippies of the new millennium. The nationalist, nativist, and white supremacist militias consider themselves justified by, as they justifiably retaliate against, not just BLM or the presidency of Obama, but also the Weather Underground, the Black Panthers, and the American Indian movement from back in the day. And their rank-and-file paleoconservative fellow travelers in the voting and non-voting-on-principle mass of Americans consider themselves hip to the anti-establishment message today's groovy thought masters are laying down. The execrable Jordan B. Peterson has no better analog in the past zeitgeist than Alan Watts of Eeyore. Of course, these analogs are not one-to-one. Alan Watts championed the probably mythical founder of Taoism, Lao Tzu, uh, whose work he had some grasp on and whose message he attempted to pass along in relatively good faith, while the bullying Peterson champions a Nietzsche distorted through his own pet peeves and crotchets with, more than likely, an eye to one day setting up a franchise of motivational churches. The ambition of the Abbey Hoffman wannabes is protracted fame as conservative celebrities. The militias want long-term white Christian heterosexual male political domination the acknowledgement of which they would demand via a hefty investiture in cultural energy, producing a vast menu they could watch on TV every night to replace the decadence we're currently exposed to. And Jordan Peterson won't be happy until he's the center of the intellectual and spiritual universe. That's a recipe for despair. And one can detect it in his public relations flailings as he drowns in the ocean of zeitgeisty narcissism. It's not merely the analogies that fail to correspond completely. This is simply a different era. The revolutionary era the right wants to ape has already happened. Its changes enfolded into the current timeline along the way. The right was never silenced. William F. Buckley was more a household name than Gore Vidal, despite Vidal's superiority as a writer and his appearance in Gattaca. Tom Wolfe and Joan Didion long ago proved to be cultural touchstones. They outlasted Ayn Rand because of her lack of comparative talent. Yet the right won't let her die. They need her to be their Apostle Paul of megalomania. Though organic right-wing offerings have already informed the discourse as they've been absorbed into it. Intellectualism has transformed, and as morose as it might have rendered Harold Bloom, the appetite 
of postmodernism was already well on the way to consummation before prophylaxis against it had time to organize itself into viable opposition, which it still hasn't accomplished. Culture has always devoured, digested, and incorporated even its stillborn antagonists. Some might point here to Hegel. I'm not saying. I have no dog in that fight. At least not one named Hegel. Further, the nature of ideas brooded about on the left as opposed to the right are qualitatively different. One cannot substitute one for another as if a growth capitalist or free market pillar could be swapped out for a communitarian or sustainable one and support the same roof. Jordan Peterson isn't Alan Watts and never will be. The reason Alan Watts and the playful genius of quantum electrodynamics, Richard Feynman, share spiritual DNA is because they are cooking with similarly joyous, loving flavors. If there's a scientist Jordan Peterson shares DNA with, it's the dour, censorious Richard Dawkins. Who wants to be the spiritual reflection of that mopey dude? And if Peterson resembles anyone in humor, PR, or argumentative strategy, it's the poisonous Dinesh D'Souza. Even writing that down, even knowing how true it rings, I can't help pitying them both. History's resemblance to a pendulum, swinging now left, now right, belies its nature as an amalgam of continuous intertwining discourses. Its arc most likely doesn't bend toward either justice or injustice. It may be a runaway train heading toward the destruction of civilization, or perhaps its redemption. Most likely, though, it will not wind up anywhere we can pinpoint, certainly not now, nor when it eventually arrives. The direction of history itself is an illusory narrative with a Christian eschatological map unconsciously or superconsciously imposed on it by centuries of philosophical habit. We may not be going anywhere. History may be spreading and thinning like an oil spill. Metaphors can only do so much heavy lifting and no more. A thing is what it is, and one never knows its nature in the moment of its being. It's like an election. You have to wait to know what happened, and even then, its significance must be explored. It takes time to peel away the layers of an onion and analyze their nature. Back in the days of the old, dark Yule, there was a figure named Bloody Thomas. He carried an enormously heavy hammer, bloody from bludgeoning anything or anyone luckless enough to cross his path. If you look up Bloody Thomas in the online Urban Dictionary today, though... You will see it defined, and I paraphrase, as the act of drenching your penis in Tabasco sauce, then penetrating a partner's anus while singing the KFC theme song. This is what I'm talking about. You can't compare the bloody Thomas of old with the current one and expect them to resemble each other in any meaningful way. Imagine what had to go on throughout the intervening centuries in order to effect that transformation. That's the mysterious process we inhabit. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. So an old girlfriend of mine had a landlord who was a really nice guy. And uh, she introduced him to me and she goes, this is my landlord, John Thomas. And I said, <laughs> oh, man, that must have been a horrible childhood for you. And he said, what do you mean? And I was like, well, because your name's John Thomas. And he said, what's wrong with my name being John Thomas? <laughs> And I said, so you've never heard that that's slang for a penis before? And he said, no, not until you just told me. Wow. And I was, you just ruined his life. I know. I was really, really surprised. I thought everybody knew that John Thomas was a 
phrase for a penis. It's a very it's a very Monty Python uh, 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 slang term for the schlong. I also heard uh, I was watching the old Alistair Sim version of A Christmas Carol the other night, and uh, I just love whenever in any kind of dialogue, whenever you're writing a, not a moment of truth, but the next time you're working on a movie, if you could put Bob's Your Uncle in there at some point in time, that would just make me very happy. I'm always trying to squeeze that in. Yeah. You have a list yeah. of phrases that you try to fit in at all times? Anything having to do with Moby Dick, any allusion to Moby Dick, uh... I don't know. There's a few that uh, I can't think of them right now. But my my writing partner also he's like, let's. I'm like, why why is he saying that? You just want him to say that for, because you like, whatever, <laughs> Malcolm X or you like, uh, Tolstoy. You like, you know, we're always throwing stuff in. Never fits. Always has to be cut. Generally, it's part of a whole section that is considered worthless and extraneous. <laughs> that's just the way it goes. Yeah, that sounds like my monologues on uh, during Patreon. Jeffy. Oh, no. <laughs> Jeffy. What? Do I have a hernia? <laughs> no, I have one. Would you like to borrow oh, it? I can't. You know what? Let's, let's not spread it too thin. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> exactly. Until next time. Yeah? Stay beautiful. Okay. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people. This is hell. Dan, do we have any more responses to this week's question from hell? No, I kind of blew through them with no thought to the future. That's okay. It was fantastic. Those are some really great answers to this week's question from hell. We will have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell in the next hour of this week's show. Again, this is where I normally would be asking Dan who our next guest is, but frankly, we are not certain as right before going on air, we had to reschedule tomorrow's guest. So... On tomorrow's show, who the hell knows what will happen other than we will be reading the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell, and we will be announcing this week's winner, and Lindsay Gorey will be here to produce. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, and live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Dan Hill for producing. Yes, there will be This Is Hell office hours this evening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue, the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now. It's our meet and greet that's really a drink and think. So please join us this evening for This Is Hell Office Hour starting at about 6 p.m. and going until uh, 10, maybe. That sounds about right. Live from the United States, where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh, my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>